It's the giving it that's hard. We don't mind if somebody wants to come and ask us t- uh, to forgive them, but we are sometimes very slow to go and seek forgiveness from somebody else. We think of stories like Corey Tenboom. We're reminded of how after the war she was confronted with one of her Nazi captors who asked her if he would if she would forgive him. Of course she did. And we think of Louis Zamperini, another war hero who survived very difficult circumstances, not only shipwrecked or crashed at sea and, and stranded at sea, but under Japanese captivity. And yet, after being converted through the preaching of Billy Graham, he returns to Japan five years later and forgives all of his captors face to face. We hear stories like that and we're stirred and we think, yes, if I suffered through that kind of hardship, I would forgive them. You know, we want to think we would be those kinds of people. We want to think that given those kinds of hardships and suffering and adversity, we would have a forgiving heart like they did. But how, how far does forgiveness go? Are there, are there sins, are there things that we are excused from forgiving? What's the limit of forgiveness? Are Christians just to be doormats, constantly being run over because we're willing to forgive? We have been studying in Matthew's Gospel the parables of Jesus. And he's been giving us a picture of what it looks like to be a part of the kingdom of God. What the kingdom of God is, the nature of it, how it grows. Its logic is sometimes different than our worldly logic, right? The last will be first, and the first will be last. The most privileged are children. And the rich and the privileged of this life often are not part of the kingdom of God. Well, now we come this morning to Matthew chapter 18, and Peter wonders out loud, how often should I forgive my brother when he sins against me? And he is, as Peter does, answers the question for Jesus. Seven times? Seven times seems like a good enough number. But Jesus responds with a parable, the parable of the unforgiving servant. And in this parable, we get a glimpse of the ethic of the kingdom of God. It's an ethic of mercy, an ethic of forgiveness. And as we look at this text, I want you to keep these questions in mind. What have we been forgiven? And what are we to forgive? Let's look together. At Matthew chapter 18, beginning in verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, 
one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant! I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this, your word. We ask that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts that understand, so that we may behold wonders therein. We pray this in Jesus' strong name, and amen. Jesus answers Peter's question, how often should I forgive my brother who sins against me with a statement, not seven times, but 77 times. And it's not as if Jesus is saying, well, let's extend it a little bit. You know, let's let's move out, you know, just broaden your horizons, Peter, and think in terms of, you know, a little bit bigger of a ledger. You could still keep track of it. You know, 77, okay. 75, ooh, you're getting close. 76, wow. 77, done, unfriended, not following you. Is that what Jesus is teaching? Is he teaching that, well, you're, you're sort of on track, Peter, but just extend it a little bit? No, not at all. And we know that because he responds to this by by giving a parable, right? We've seen this over and over again. Jesus is teaching, giving us something of what the kingdom of heaven is like by describing it in terms of stories. And so he tells a story of a servant and a king. A king is settling accounts. He wants to bring in all of his debtors and settle up. And he brings in one who owes 10,000 talents Now, probably this is something like his chief financial officer. This is the minister of finance, right? This is the one who carries the purse strings for the kingdom. He's got access to a lot of of money. And somehow he has mismanaged. He's been siphoning off. Whatever the case is, he has racked up an enormous debt. 10,000 talents is 60 million denarii. Now, two weeks ago, we looked at the, the, uh, the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. 
Do you remember what a day's wage was? One denarii. That means this is 60 million days of labor. 204 metric tons of gold or silver. In our equivalent, it would be somewhere between $12 million upwards of $1 billion. This is not a little debt. This is a massive debt. This is a debt that this man has absolutely no possibility of paying back. He orders, the king orders that this servant be sold. Now, a slave maybe is a half of a talent. Just selling him and his wife and children won't even scratch the surface on this debt. He commands that he be sold, but the servant begs for patience. He begs for patience. And this is going to be very important for us interpreting this parable. And we'll come back to this in a little bit. He begs for patience, and he claims that he will repay everything. Amazingly, that is what the king does. He extends mercy, and he releases him, and he forgives him of this massive debt. Why? Why does the king do that? Why does the king release him from this debt? Well, look with me at verse 27. I think there's a little clue in verse 27. It says, And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Now, out of pity doesn't really capture the emotional depth of the word that Matthew is using. The word is splunknizomai. I only say that because it just sounds so cool. And it's, it's this inward passion, compassion. It's this compelling, visceral feeling of compassion. For the ancients, the seat of your emotions is your bowels. This is why in the King James Version, they translate this word as bowels of mercy. Because it, it, it's something that he intensely feels. It's not just pity. He doesn't just look at this man and think, oh, I'll, I mean, I feel sorry for him. He can never pay me back, so I feel terrible. It's that he has moved viscerally to respond to this man's plight and to forgive him. And this word is used over and over of Jesus Jesus is described as having this kind of compassion. In Matthew 9.36, it says, When He saw the crowds, He had compassion on them. He felt viscerally compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Or in Matthew 14.14, When He went ashore, He saw a great crowd and He had compassion on them and healed their sick. Or in Matthew 15, 32, Then Jesus called His disciples to Him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with Me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. And it's also used in the Gospel of Luke as the father in the parable of the prodigal son. The father, and he rose, it says in Luke fifteen twenty, And he rose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. 
Jesus has a great deal of compassion. It moves him outside of himself to reach the plight of those struggling under the weight of their debt of sin, sickness, death, all the effects of the fall. He has compassion. His heart is moved and goes out for the suffering. And Jesus obviously tells this parable that pictures God's forgiveness because we are all that wicked servant with a debt we can never repay. We owe way more than 10,000 talents. Some, some of you here, tender-hearted as you are, struggle with knowing and believing that God has completely forgiven your sin. You know it. You know it theoretically. You know it theologically. You know that Jesus has forgiven your sins past. You know that He has forgiven your present sins. And you, you know that He will forgive your future sins. You know this, but your heart struggles to believe it. And you, you have Satan constantly in your ear reminding you of your sin, accusing you. You're a Christian? Really? When you just exploded in anger at your children? When you were so harsh to your spouse? When you just flipped that person off because they cut you off in the merging onto the highway? You're a Christian? And you hear these playing in your mind all the time, accusing you bringing up, reminding you of your sins. Satan is often accusing you because that's who he is. And so when you hear that God has forgiven you completely, you think, I want to believe it. I know it's true. I believe the Word of God is true, but is it true for me? Sometimes we conceive of the Christian life as a tightrope over hell. And we're just one foot over the other. And if one little sin, we could just fall off to the other side it's straight into hell. And we feel that intensely. We feel that God is not for us, but He's against us. And our sins are constantly keeping us from Him. But the Christian life is not like that. Yes, it's filled with adversity and there's hardship and there's dangers and difficulties. But your life is never really under threat. If you are the Lord's and He is yours, then nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Amen. Dear saints, do you believe that? Is it a truth that you are rehearsing to yourself? The Christian life is more like a video game, at least video games in my day. They, they, I now know they're open worlds and they just go everywhere. And, but my generation, it was a level and you went from point A to point B. And you could die along the way, but you would get resurrected. And usually it was right where you died and you got to pick up and keep going. That's like the Christian life. You fall and the Lord picks you up. He doesn't expect you to be down here, He knows where you are and He takes you from where you are. 
And he says, my child, I love you. I've forgiven you. Now, walk faithfully. And then you fall. And he says, my child, I love you and I've forgiven you. Walk faithfully. This doesn't relieve us from having to obey the Lord. But it it should never disquiet our hearts that his love and his forgiveness is real. It's like a father with a sick child. The father loves the child, but he hates the disease that the child is suffering with. Say it's cancer. He hates that cancer. He wants to destroy that cancer. But he loves the child. And when the child is, is going through chemotherapy and he's feeling all the tenderness and weight of, of that, the father speaks tenderly to him. He cares for him even while hating the disease. The Lord loves you and cares for you even while hating the sin that so easily besets you. These are not set in opposition to each other. The Father is speaking to you today saying, Look, do you see how much compassion I have for you that has moved me to pardon all of your guilt? Look and see the bloody cross. Look and see the scorn, thorn-scarred head. Look and see His pierced hands and hear the agony of the cry of dereliction. That's how much compassion I have for you. Dear saints, do you believe that? Then take that to Satan when he accuses you and say, no! Because Jesus. What have you been forgiven? Everything. Everything. It's not as if he said, I forgive you 9,000 talents, but you need to come up with the last thousand. Good faith. You know, I'm going to help you out. I feel for you. I have pity for you. Come up with a thousand. Let's see what you can do. All of it is forgiven. Everything. And if that's true, if that is true, what must we forgive? 9,000? This sin, but not that. This relational problem, but not that one. We pick and choose. The question is, did the servant in this parable who was forgiven understand what the king had done for him? Did he understand? The answer is clearly no. Look what happens. Right in verse 28, almost seems like Jesus is saying immediately after forgiven. But when the same servant went out, he went, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. Remember, 10,000 talents is 60 million denarii. This other servant owes 100 denarii. They're not even coming close. How is he able to do this? How can he move from the room of forgiveness to come and grab a man by the throat, shaking him, pay me what you owe? Over 100 denarii. How was he able to do that? 
And I want us to go back to see the answer to that. The answer lies in the servant's original plea found in verse 26. So the servant, that is the one who owed 10,000 talents, he fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. Now notice that. He doesn't say, have mercy on me and forgive my debt. I can never pay it. He says, just just be patient. I can do this. I can come up with this 10,000 talents. I will pay it all back. And he's thinking, I've got this guy. He owes me 100 denarii. I've got this guy who owes 100. He's got his ledger out and he's working it. He's saying, I can, I can probably extort this person. I'll sell the yacht. I'll get rid of the second house in Florida. We'll figure this out. I can do this. Just be patient with me. Just give me some time and I will pay you back. Do you hear that? Do you hear it in his response? Does he understand the depth of the problem that he is in? Does he see his debt? He is what the Puritans call a legal spirit. Yeah, he has debt and it's huge. But if the king is just patient, he'll figure out how to pay it. First, there are two things we see here. First, he does not understand how much this costs the king to forgive this debt. Herod the Great's annual salary at this time was 900 talents. This king is super wealthy. If he has a debt for 10,000 talents, and he can just say, not a problem. This is a costly forgiveness. This is not something that just, it's not a bother. Yeah, all, it's fine. 10,000, no big deal. I got, lots of, I got lots of money around. This costs him. It costs him 10,000 talents. But more than that, he has to be willing to die to himself. He has to be willing to sacrifice. And of course, in this we see our Lord Jesus Christ. We see the sacrifice that He was willing to enter into. Not just for your 10,000 talents, but mine. And yours, and yours, and yours, and yours. Millions upon millions of people who are indebted to God. Enslaved to their debt. Which is sin. And Jesus willingly takes it all upon Himself. Paying that penalty so that Paul says the record of our debt is nailed to the cross and canceled. But it wasn't a cheap sacrifice. It was a costly sacrifice. It cost the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Father's only Son. And He willingly gives it up. He willingly gives His Son up. And the Son willingly offers Himself. To pay that sacrifice. Secondly, the servant thinks that it was his shrewdness that earned him patience. He thinks somehow he's convinced the king that he will repay. And so he in turn treats his fellow servants with shrewdness. I need to get this money so that I'm no longer beholden to the king. So he turns 
to this fellow servant and he chokes him and he's unwilling to show him the mercy and forgiveness that he received. He misunderstands on two fronts what the king has done. Of course, the king, he hears about this. The other servants see it and they're appalled at this man's behavior. And so he reports them to the king. And the king calls the servant and says, How could you have done this? When I've forgiven you so much, you don't even owe me. And yet you go and exact this from this man and, and send him to prison. And so he says, Because you refuse to show mercy, so I will refuse to show you mercy. You refuse to forgive, so I also will refuse to forgive you. And he sends him to the jailers. And jailer here is a mild term. The term is actually torturer. He is being turned over to those who will exact punishment through pain and torture. And Jesus ends with this summary. So also. And that is devastating. So also, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Is Jesus teaching works righteousness? Are we saved by our forgiveness of others? I I mean, that's what it seems to say, right? This person was forgiven and then he refused to forgive And now he is in jail and he's suffering. And Jesus says, your heavenly Father will do the same thing. Are we saved by our works? The answer is no. The order of this story is absolutely vital. We may borrow a Pauline expression, the indicative, what God has done for you in the gospel, freely offered. You don't do anything to earn your justification, your adoption, your sanctification, your eventual glorification. All of those things are freely offered to you in the gospel, purchased by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. That's the indicative. But there is an imperative. The imperative flows out of the indicative. And that is how you are to live in light of that truth. In light of God purchasing your salvation, how then do you live? From the perspective of the king, that's the order. But does the servant receive it that way? Does he receive this pardon, this forgiveness, as an indicative, something that the king has done for him? Well, the answer is no, he doesn't. What does he say? Have patience with me and I will pay you back. This is all his work. He's going to get this done. This is what we call bootstrap theology. Right? We just, I can pull myself up. I will get it done. He reverses the indicative and the imperative. The order is completely changed and now it's just imperative, imperative. He misses the gospel trying to repay his debt. And the proof of this is in his treatment of the servant. He immediately, how is he able to go from forgiveness to this? Well, he doesn't understand forgiveness. He, he still thinks he's getting patience so he can repay. 
He's still thinking in terms of legal, the ledger, the bank account. This wicked servant never really understood the gospel. He never understood that his sins were forgiven. He never understood that his debt had been wiped clean. And he never really received the costly forgiveness of the king. Instead, he accepted the offer as a call to find some way to pay his own debt off. So, of course, he turns to his servant and exacts it. He's got a big debt he's got to pay. Instead of modeling a radical death to self stance that the king took by dying to himself through forgiveness of his fellow servants, he opted for a ledger, bank analogy, works-based approach to dealing with interpersonal relationships. Jesus says those who respond that way prove that they are not in the kingdom of heaven. You cannot be forgiven everything and then turn and not forgive your brother and expect that you are a part of the kingdom of heaven. And this is heart-stirring. Do I embody that kind of radical forgiveness? Do you? Or do I carry with me a whole list of slights and sins others have committed against me? Do I take it out every once in a while and look at it? Johnny, bump, ba, bump, ba, bump, ba, bump, not forgotten anything. Susie, yep, I remember when you did that. Yep, I remember that. We got our lists and we hold them, we keep them tight. Do we treat our relationships like a bank? With an eye always on the ledger to see what others might owe you? Or do we radically forgive? In order to appreciate forgiveness, you have to, first of all, you have to recognize your debt. If you do not come to see yourself as absolutely empty, devoid of any way to earn salvation, unless you are freed from all your self-righteousness, and you see that apart from the precious work of Jesus Christ, I am, a, and, and, am under the wrath of God. And I'm deserving of His judgment. If you don't see that, you will never appreciate forgiveness and you will never give it. You wonder why some have a small view of Christ. Why do some seem not to be impressed with Christ? And you think, how is this even possible? Christ who gave everything so that you could have freedom. So that your debt could be wiped away. And yet, coming to church is so challenging. They barely make it week after week. Loving their family by leading them in the Scriptures. Too challenging. The world, their career sports, whatever, hobbies. All these things reign supreme in their life. But Christ is, yeah, I mean, it's something we do as a family. We try. Every month at least we come, try to worship. They're unimpressed with Christ. They have a small view of Christ because they don't recognize their debt. They don't see their sin. right? We have great ways of conceiving this. Well, I'm not... I mean, I'm not that bad. 
I've never murdered somebody. Right? I've never done this or that. And we have our, our standards. I vote Republican. I voted for Trump. We have our measures. Right? I'm for social justice. I advocate for women's rights. Whatever your measure of what it means to be good. It's, it pales in comparison to the righteous standard that God calls each one of us to. That we could never measure up to. Then, when you have a view of yourself and that high view of Christ, you can't help but be forgiving. Then record-keeping makes no sense at all. And each time your brother or sister sins against you, it's like it's the first time. Because you have no records. You have practiced keeping short accounts. So it is the first time. So Peter's seven times and Jesus' response of 77 times means that the bank analogy, the ledger, the keeping score, the keeping account is not a part of the ethic of the kingdom of God. Is this because you've relegated yourself to being a doormat? No. No. But because you are so overwhelmed by God's forgiveness of your massive debt that any sin you encounter appears inconsequential, making forgiveness natural. We just are forgiving people because we have experienced the mercy and forgiveness of God. And if we are not, watch out. Now it can seem from this parable that the story is rather static. There isn't development, right? We don't, we don't see this whole servant's life. Perhaps he did repent. It could leave you thinking that if you have in the past harbored bitterness, or if you at this time have unforgiven sins that you hold against other people, that there is no hope for you, that you are outside of the kingdom. But remember, these parables focus on the snapshot, not the video. But you are not static. You're not a one-dimensional character. You are in a story. And your life is dynamic. And stories have endings. The question then is, how do I more and more become the servant who easily forgives? And the answer is, To forgive others everything, you have to go back to what you have been forgiven of, which is everything. By constantly rehearsing the story of redemption, you remind yourself of the penalty that Christ paid for your debt, interest and all, and you keep Christ in your sight, And remind yourself of the beauty and grandeur of forgiveness. And it's then that when your husband leaves his socks on the floor for the millionth time, you can forgive him. Or worse, when a drunk driver hits your child's car and takes their life, you can forgive them. Everything. Because you have been forgiven of everything. 
and the burden of unforgiven sin, and it is a burden. Brothers and sisters, don't carry that burden. Christ has lifted it. It's a burden that will consume you, not them. Most people who sin against us go on living life, and they never think twice about it. It's the person that's harboring bitterness and anger towards them with unforgiven sin who pays, dearly carrying that burden with them, eating away at their lives. Jesus has taken it. It means that you don't have to carry the burden. For I and you have done greater still to our Lord. And it cost Him His life, but He forgave you. And I can forgive this wrong because I have been forgiven much. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we are astounded at the forgiveness You have offered us in Christ Jesus. And there are some here who struggle to accept that they are forgiven. And there are others here who are glibly trifling about that forgiveness. Father, we ask that for those who struggle to experience forgiveness, may you make your presence and your forgiveness known to them today. For our brothers and sisters who think, I'm doing okay. And they don't have a good estimation of the debt of the cost of their salvation, would you make that real to them today? And for those who are still holding on to the weight of that debt, struggling to figure out how to pay it on their own, would you speak the word of pardon and bring forgiveness to their anxious and troubled hearts through the gospel this morning? And we ask, Father, that we may be embodying the kind of people who forgive because we have been forgiven everything. And we pray this in Jesus' strong name. And amen. Amen. Saints, let's stand together and sing number 530, Lord, I want to be a Christian.